Hi, Jeremy. Hi, Raphael. Um, you've told me that you're not feeling too great. I'm feeling terrible. I'm sick. Um, I'm going to sniffle a lot through this episode. I might cough, and that cough is going to have particulate matter <laughs> that's <laughs> going to sound really gross. That's why we have the pop uh, filter in front of the mic. Yeah, exactly. You can it's use the, that. It's the mucus to, collector. And also feel free to use these clips for your next zombie movie. Uh, this, these obvious, <laughs> like, fully <laughs> the sounds. Fluids. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Um, yeah, but I, I unfortunately, I, I've been, I got sick this week. I pushed myself maybe a little too hard and then my immune system crashed. Yeah, it's a funny thing with work where you have a deadline or a trip or an opening or a thing and you save your energy and then later you... I don't know. It happens a lot on the flight home when you get home and you still feel okay and that you unwind yeah. and say, okay, now I pay the price. Yeah, I'm always okay as long as the adrenaline is rushing. Like I could not sleep for two days and like, it'll be like you're on yeah, some that's kind why, of amphetamine yeah. or something. But That's why, why I had that question about coffee or any upper that mm. at some point, I guess you your immune system goes down a little bit because you're like on a rush all the time and then you you're more prone to get sick. Yeah, I mean, this wasn't even that stress. Well, Kristen was it's sick like last this, week, and I maybe the the sprinter versus the runner. That's what I'm trying. <laughs> yeah. to yeah. But we both had busy weeks, and you, I didn't. Well, you had an opening, uh, which is I. Yeah, I w- but the works were done four months before or something. I mean, you're a very elegant uh, w- person under control. Your opening, of course, was under control three months ago. If it had been me and my opening, <laughs> though, I would have been changing my mind about what works are going to go up right until the last minute, which I know some artists do. Um, oh, yeah. yeah, yeah. No, there's, there's artists also. I, I've done, I mean, this, there's different types of exhibitions. But I've done shows where... It's an installation that I don't even know beforehand what it'll be, and you get the materials in, and you start smashing things, and it happens then. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, like in the space, like if yeah. you kind of respond to the context. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. But thought, so there's different ways of approaching it. Yeah, but I thought it would be interesting just to talk about the opening, and we can talk about like what I did to maybe performance versus openings, but like the opening itself as a concept to the art world. Um, yeah, from the point of view it's, of an it, artist yeah, versus yeah, yeah, the yeah. audience. It, and it's very different per city. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So in New York City, uh, probably you know this time of year, they're back to are, back to school. Back uh, galleries yeah. open back. Up. Well, because as as many people might not be aware, most galleries are even like they just shut down completely in the month of August, um, and yeah. they'll say like we'll be back in six weeks or whatever. And people are like, be- but well, it, it's because it's. I don't know if it's the same, but most cities in August are too hot. Mm-hmm. And people go away, so to do an exhibition in August would just not be very effective. You just you don't have any foot traffic, and if you're like, should I go to the beach or should mm. I go check out an exhibition? It's a yeah. Tough and there are equation. two kind of peak seasons, and this is the like this week is like the peak week, so it's the best opening week you can have. And then maybe uh, there are some weeks in the spring that people in New York would talk about yeah. uh, being. It's both times that the. New York is actually kind of comfortable. Most of the year, it's either too hot or too cold. (laughs) And it seems to be designed for walking from gallery to gallery. Yeah, and that's the thing that I was... When I say it's very different per city, because in some cities, you'll have an opening, and it's the focus. Like, it's an opening that has different... has a timeline. So there's a beginning and an introduction of the exhibition. Someone introduces it and unveils the artwork. But... In an opening in September in a dense city, 
there's maybe 40 or 60 openings and people might see five or six or seven of them. So mm -hmm. you can't think of a program of like, oh, well now we open the champagne and the exhibition, it, it's more the, the exhibition already opens in the morning and people walk around all day and go mm -hmm. in and out. That's right. And so the opening itself is like a little party for a job well done, right? Uh, yeah, regardless of the... It, it, it's very different because you can have a terrible show but a really great crowd or the other way. You can have a really amazing show but it just... <laughs> doesn't get, get the attention it deserves or it, it, I don't, I don't well, think this is kind of what I wanted to talk about so yeah. I mean without talking about I mean well how many people were what, was your opening uh, busy yeah yeah it was uh, and it was really nice it was a lot of friends uh, everyone I wanted to be there that I yeah I, I was like oh I hope that person comes I hope that person everybody was there so it was great yeah well I wasn't there but <laughs> yeah, but I know we're how you here. feel about yeah. me. Yeah, yeah. Um, no, but I think that that's that's actually for me. That's always what's important. I'm like, oh, I hope these like key friends show up, and if they don't, it's a little bit like showing like a like having a house party, and your best friend doesn't show up, and you're like, oh, what did I yeah, do? Yeah, yeah. What did I do wrong? But there's so much so much of it is built up around social networks and friends and um, being there for one another. That uh, I, I don't know if that's the way the general public know, understands those things, or maybe they do. Um, well, in, in, for the general public, I don't think openings have any added value. And actually, if you want to see the exhibition, it's better to go when it's not the opening. If right, you really want say, to study the works. They always say, add an opening. Of course, everyone who's not looking at your work is saying, like, well, of course, you don't go to openings to see the work or whatever, because you mm -hmm. can't see it anyway. It's too crowded. Should, or should we maybe, for a, a really non-art audience, explain... And I'll just explain simply what an opening is. Like, That's what I was trying to get to, yeah. Yeah. Um, so you have an exhibition which is usually four weeks and there's just a certain time that the exhibition starts but um, the goal of the exhibition is to show the work but also to sell the work so a lot of times you'll have regular clients of the gallery that you want to show the works before it opens oh yes that's like an hour so they before. feel special and they have early access because there's always a few works that are the most desirable and you want them to have the first pick mm-hmm uh, and then the opening is usually, as far as I know, from 6 to 8 or from 5 to 7 in the yep. late, late afternoon. And people have drinks and look around. Yeah, that's, and that's most the standard often, opening. And then most often openings are on Thursdays. Maybe the general mm -hmm. public doesn't know that uh, yeah. and why that is. <laughs> no, no idea why that is. Yeah. Well, and, I think, but now that it's opening week, it's basically 10 days of openings. There's openings on Monday and Tuesday. Sure, it's, because yeah. there's a lot of competition. Yeah, but in some cities actually they aggregate all around Thursdays just to make it uh, possible because in a smaller city they'll often do like a what's called first Thursdays. Have you ever do you know what that is? It's like the first, the first Thursday. Thursday of the month, and then yeah. all the galleries at the same time. Yeah, the problem they have there is that there are not enough people to go to any one opening, and so what we'll do is we'll create a parade where you go from opening to opening, and so yeah. all of the artists sort of like decide, and all the galleries oh we'll open yeah. on the same day. But it is, and you can be cynical of like, oh, I'm not here to see the work. I'm just here to show my cool outfit or whatever. But um, people often look at these social relationships very in a cynical way of saying, oh, it doesn't even matter the quality of the work. It's about uh, meeting the right people. But mm -hmm. um, I always compare this. If you need a doctor or you need something that a, a new hairdresser or something and you need a recommendation, 
it's all about personal relationships and trust. So at openings, you get to talk to a lot of people quickly that you might end up being good friends with later, but you mm. initially, yeah. And it, I don't know, I'm, I'm not, I'm having a hard time articulating. No, 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 it, it's, it's, a, it's a bit it's, of a, it's, a speed dating kind of situation. I mean, yeah, but I'm, that's again sort of speed dating sounds horrible. Well, to uh, be frank, at an opening, it, you know, if you have a great opening, like it sounds like you did, you're very, and you're lucky to get that, right? Like, yeah, I've but it's not just for me, it's for everybody who feels yeah. connected to this type of work to meet yeah. in real life instead of on a forum. Yeah, that's that's true. Um, but if if you're in that kind of a, it is a bit of a frenzy, you know, and it's almost like a like a cell like organism with people sort of shoulder to shoulder, and you have barely, you know, you maybe have five minutes with each person before you're pulled yeah. in another direction. Oh my God, so and so is here. Da da da. It's a little bit like, yeah. I don't Sorry, know. Sorry, I can talk to you more. Yeah, yeah, it's like a really when they're when it when everything hits when you get to that climax point, and it's kind of like there's a point because I've had a lot of failed openings. I'm just going to admit on air where it's like it didn't hit that like that point especially here in Toronto where there's just not enough people to keep people there because the thing is if you have a smaller opening and there's just a spattering of people they talk to you and there's no one else to talk to they look at the work and then they're like well, mm. I'm done now but yeah. I guess I'll leave I had my beer yeah yeah I had my beer. exactly like what's yeah. what's next so you do kind of need for it to like build up almost like a you know well, like there's institutional openings, which are very different. Because they're Those not are tied to, yeah. like... It, it, so the, the the gallery openings are usually... A lot of galleries open at the same time, and people walk around. And an institutional opening, especially if it's a group show... Group shows are different, because if each artist brings 20 friends, but there's <laughs> 20 artists in the show, that's a lot of people. Yeah, so the group... group op- I mean, a group show is, a, is obviously going to have... It's easier to get a large attendance if you're Yeah, that's what I noticed with BYOB, which... BYB to bring your own beamer that's almost the opening as the exhibition because there's no mm-hmm. exhibition afterwards yeah and so actually that's an interesting point which is not all exhibitions do last a month some exhibitions have an opening and then they have a maybe you know they, they maybe close at, at the end of the week or some what's become more common is like they might have an opening then it's by appointment only <laughs> well, <laughs> and there's then they whole, have like a closing <laughs> we, we talked about it before about the uh, uh, retail shifting online and Amazon and the mm-hmm. social implications in, into city structures and all those things. That's there's been a lot of speculation with real estate in major cities. So mm-hmm. uh, the prices are crazy, and uh, the leases, the the contracts for renting a space is usually five or ten years for a business, mm-hmm. and after that they can raise the price as much as they want. So galleries usually move to an underappreciated neighborhood. Um, kind of dangerous uh, people don't want to go there then the galleries move there then because of that restaurants open coffee shops and, yeah. and then ad agencies come in and then everything gets expensive they steal all the work and <laughs> 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 it's the natural cycle but then uh, what happened now is that a lot of galleries it's not sustainable to rent a full time space so they might the art fair almost is like it's a, it's a little city with uh, one opening, a preview, a press preview, the, all the things you do in, an, in a regular gallery, but mm-hmm. then with 100 galleries at the same time. And yeah, it's, it's what you're describing. The work is only viewable for four days. Yeah. But I've, you know, I've also noticed uh, a trend, it, like especially in the last six months, um, where galleries that I know and I've loved for a long time have decided to close their doors like on physical spaces. 
Yeah, yeah. And instead, um, have no what they're calling nomadic events, and this is becoming a very common format. In uh, a few years ago, this was considered innovative, but now it's becoming more and more like I would say like. 10% of galleries operate this way where they've yeah, closed yeah, their yeah. physical locations. They'll have an opening and it might be like a pop-up like at a, like some kind of exhibition space or a fair or some some weird thing that they've d- taken over, some institutional context, who knows. And then that that closes immediately. That the work is no longer viewable. It was sort of an event for to to, to get attention and then it, and then it's gone and and they and then they go on to the next event or whatever. And so the opening has become you know, like you said, openings aren't for seeing work, but in among a certain new group of galleries, that might be where the the only time you can yeah. see work. Yeah, or, or the, then the preview is really important for collectors to see it before the big social opening. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, and the three days after, where you can spend some time with the work, because there's a very big difference between uh, just browsing or really studying it and considering what you want to buy. Yeah, well, the, you know, the other thing is, uh, since a large, I think it's 30% of collectors now sort of spend their time uh, researching on Instagram. I was I had a meeting with a curator a couple of weeks ago, and they're like, yeah, I've looked all over your Instagram, and I just don't know what you're up to. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, okay, yeah. like, there are better ways. There's the studio visit, but whatever, if you're going <laughs> to do it this way. And galleries have started to recognize this, too, and it's like, okay, well, the event can ha- if the event happens and we document it on, in digital space, that's almost like the ex- exhibition's captured yeah, but infinitely it, then forward. It, it's also, I make different series of works mm-hmm. and the different materials. And if you've seen about five of the works in one exhibition and then you experience the rest online, you understand the material. So mm-hmm. uh, you don't have to see every work at yeah, some yeah. point. You're like, oh, I know the material and that I like that composition. Yeah. Well, it, you know, it reminds me of like... Um, artists like Artie Vierkant early on who were making work that was for online exhibition and if you saw the physical exhibition it looked different and there was like a Photoshop uh, post-production Yeah, there's also uh, a whole history of that in architecture where they make these idealized photos of buildings without Mm -hmm. people around it and they remove the graffiti and the cars are gone and that perfect building doesn't exist in real life Right, and so <clears throat> I guess I'm I'm trying to make a good point very early in this podcast. Uh oh, <laughs> uh oh, which <laughs> this is, is the shortest episode. I can imagine a gallery where like you have ten openings in a day, uh, no, maybe even a hundred, and that gallery is called Instagram or whatever, you know, like, <laughs> <laughs> and it's like just continuous openings, like the density, because these nomadic uh, galleries are essentially traveling from fair to fair, yeah, and bringing you know, putting together exhibitions on like a weekly basis or a monthly basis or whatever. And it's really just to get the, the show up in, in front of sellers, like you said, give them the material reference, like a boat show or a car show, tear it down, Instagram it, and then, you know, do it again, build the brand. And continue. It's the craziest thing to me. So when you look at the beginnings of NetArt, it's like, okay, we have all these machines that are connected and our eyeballs are there. Mm-hmm. So why not make art for that screen? Why go through all the hassle of Building something physically, photographing it, and then uploading it—it's very inefficient. But I—I noticed the excitement on social media of something that existed in real life. So, if I post, uh, it's—it's the same. It's a very sort of primitive uh, thing. If people ask me, "What are you up to?" and I'm like, "Oh, it's great. I've just been home all the time, and I made these really uh, sketches for websites, and I'm very excited about them." And Mm -hmm. people are like, "Okay." (laughs) <laughs> but then if I say, oh, I have a show in Japan and then I'm going to Australia, they're like, ooh, you must be doing well. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's it, it it's this very superficial reading. Yeah. No, but these are what they you know like if you're designing if, a if website. You say, if if, if mm-hmm. you run into someone, it's like, how are you doing? It's like, yeah, I made I made an animated GIF today. It doesn't yeah. sound exciting. And if you if you're like, well, I built a bridge today. That sounds more impressive. Well, I was like, I was helping up here at work uh, with, you know, the, they're working on like a, a young designer who's just starting to work on like website design and like specifically conversion oriented website design. So for our listeners who don't know, like people who land on websites, if you're in business, you want them to convert. <laughs> you want them to click the button, buy the thing, whatever. You want whatever. them to join your religion. Yeah. And conversion orientation or like uh, conversion Gender optimization, conversion. you know, relies on certain like base fundamental rules one of the most important rules for like relieve and what you're always trying to do is relieve anxiety and increase confidence and the biggest thing you Sounds can do like Jeff Koons. yeah <laughs> it's true the biggest thing you can do to increase confidence is to have um, what's called like a third party assurance and that can either be in the form of like I got it, like a press mention or um, as you know, as a testimonial, which will be like someone's face and like, I just love this software. It's fantastic. It saved me ten hours a month or whatever. Right? We're familiar with this from infomercials, but it's on every website. I challenge you to find a it website. It goes that back to that's what I was saying about trust. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like oh, I can trust this because my friends are here. Exactly. So like, if you see an opening, you know, you, in that shot on Instagram, you know, what you want in that shot. <laughs> for it to behave like a landing page is you want a great piece of art. That's the product. You want the artist smiling and happy about the achievement, right? You want a a large enough group of people to say like, oh my God, and there are 5,000 users of this opening. And then you want certain people in that shot. Now, this is the cynical thing to be people you might recognize, right? And then theoretically, you're not even going to go to that opening because you felt like you were there. You're like, oh yeah, that was great. (laughs) I was like... Yeah, but it is, it's it's very... uh, that cynical argument of like, oh, people will only trust it if a certain newspaper writes about it. But mm-hmm. what's what you always have to consider is, as an artist, you're in this twenty four seven. Most people have a whole life outside of art. Right. They don't. And I think a few episodes. I've always argued you should study things yourself and make up your own mind. Yeah. But then I came up with the argument of like having a really good curated uh, movie theater nearby, and I can just trust all the choices. I just know that their movies will be interesting mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I don't even have to look at the trailer and uh, so there is something about and especially now in the time of mainstream media and newspapers and blogs and conspiracy theories there's something great about trusted channels yeah yeah there is uh, one of the interesting things I think about an opening is it's the, literally the idea is that it's open to the public right but if you're just if you're just like Joe somebody walking past let's say like a gallery like like postmasters this Thursday or something like that do you think a strain i mean no there's a lot of anxiety and, and, and i think part of it is that that's same with the fashion stores like the first time you go try on suits it's really like can i go in there and ask <laughs> yeah, that yeah can i touch it and so that's that's part of also creating the aura around the work is like this is not for everybody and but that, that, that's maybe I, the same with obscure music like there's yeah. a weird concert i'm not sure if i can go in there they might kill me 
And I think, that, but I think that's an interesting thing for us to discuss. And of course, I, you know, it leads me like immediately flashing through my head where all the strangers I had met at my own openings over the years was like, hmm, you know, like who just stumbled into the opening? Like, what is this? You know, you you always have that every once in a while. Like, what is this thing that what's going on here? You're like, this is an opening, and then you have to explain, you know, the whole concept. Um, to you know, to someone that's just strolling by, but it should be more approachable than that, I, or maybe it doesn't need to be, or it shouldn't well, be. Well, most as you said. most culture is very approachable. Art is is different. Mm. Well, I was at a conference this week, um, and it was a weird. It wasn't weird. It was good. It was by these people in Montreal. Um, they run this uh, series of events called Dynamic, um, and then they decided like it, that's a monthly or quarterly kind of event. And then they decided to do a big conference. It's usually there are people who make like write and design apps and are designers and stuff like that. It's like it's kind of an agency, um, and they just wanted to st- a talking series. Anyway, they expanded to this conference, and this conference was one of those ones that's more and more common. I think where you have an eclectic kind of mix of people. So it's like you know, there's a brand person, someone from Nike. There's me as a crazy artist. There's some critic or whatever, right? And then it's mostly though an audience of of designers. But one of the the best talks was by this guy um, who's running this uh, new kind of store here in Toronto called Tokyo Smoke. And Tokyo Smoke has one goal, which is like to make marijuana like socially approachable and acceptable. And so basically, like, is it he's legal? Like, well, it's about to be legal here. Um, oh, and it's legal, of in course, the whole in a country? bunch of. Yeah. And, okay. and so they don't sell any marijuana yet in their stores. But they started two years before, you know, legalization, knowing that was coming to establish their brand as an approachable brand. So it's a coffee shop and then they have like paraphernalia you can buy. But the paraphernalia example, there are like pipes that are designed by artists. You get free rolling papers with your coffee that have like artist silkscreen prints on them. Yeah, it's funny. The the culture we create around getting high or drunk like you create all these castles around it and these wine tours and it's all refined. But <laughs> yeah. You're really just trying to get drunk. But that's what he was making this amazing point on stage, which is like coffee was not accepted as something that everyone uh, partook in as a culture in the, up until the 1990s. Then Starbucks comes along. Like coffee had this like kind of outside of just a general cup of coffee. What I mean is like Italian espresso, the way we know it now. That was like most people were intimidated by that. They're like, ooh, you know, like, yeah. that's not for me. Um, then Starbucks comes along and says, like, makes it, like, approachable. They add, of course, a lot of whipped cream <laughs> and pumpkin spiced into the mix. <laughs> but, you know, Starbucks basically is... basically selling milkshakes. And, you know, Starbucks' slogan is, you know, your second home, right? Like, their idea is to create a home outside a home, your second place or your second yeah. space. And so he's like, well, marijuana is consumed by 25% of people. So in Canada, anyway, one in four Canadians smoke marijuana regularly. And yet, like, it's if you asked people about it, they'd say, like, well, if you asked them for a statistic, they'd probably say, like, no, it's one in 100, right? Like, people are very ashamed of it. And they probably wouldn't admit it to you in person. Um, and so by creating this culture of acceptance and a lifestyle brand out of this yeah, uh, company, but, and, but you made it more approachable. They're the every man's weed then, and then there might be elitist weed where they like, yeah, oh, yeah. you're not allowed to come at the... So even Nike, Nike has many companies. It has many faces. Yeah. So they have a, a flagship store here on Broadway, and it's very busy. People walk in and out. And there's another store nearby that's more of an event space, and it's all black. The Everything's blacked out. It just looks like a black monolith. And yeah. You sort of see a logo somewhere very small, and there's only 
and it's very much about having the long line in front of it and you're right. oh something's going on in there but I don't know what it is but it reminds me that like museums they opened cafes in museums starting in Europe like maybe a decade ago and then that sort of caught on and now North American galleries have cafes but you'd never imagine a museum without a cafe and then there's like places like the I is it the I in Amsterdam the film yeah. the film center which is a museum and 75% of that museum is cafe and restaurant and it's like this huge space looking out well, it's the also water. a movie theater so it makes sense like yeah I think a, a really big part of seeing a movie is talking about the movie afterwards so people sit down and have a meal afterwards yeah yeah. Well, the point I'm trying to make is like an opening is basically it's funny that an opening is all of those things right on opening night, you know, where there's drinks and good time and music and it's like mm-hmm. a whole sensorial experience. And then openings over. Let's shut it down, guys. OK, let's make it. Let's make it not <laughs> funny anymore. It's demure. No one's allowed in without an appointment. Do I know you? Who are you? What are you yeah, doing yeah, here? Yeah. Right. Um, it's also and- funny that if you want to close an opening, you don't have to. You don't have to do much. You just remove the drinks and people just leave. There's, there's <laughs> it's, no, true. it's true. I, I had an opening years ago in Amsterdam in a space called W139. It's a big... It, it, Amsterdam has a whole history of squatting. So people squatted this huge warehouse and it became an art space and the city supports it. Mm-hmm. It's ginormous, but the they are legally only allowed to have a bar in the back if they have alcohol in the front for some reason they can't have that but my opening took over the whole space in the back Mm. so there wasn't alcohol at the opening and I'm known for not drinking so the curator was like oh people are going to get nervous I'm like no that's fine you can go but he said no we should announce beforehand that there won't be drinks so people can bring their own drinks because the the level of anxiety of standing in a brightly Mm. lit room and being sober it's terrorizing to most people now uh, have you ever seen the Cyprian Gaillard piece that was staged in Berlin where was it it was at the um, at Kunstwerke yeah Kunstwerke the Aztec beer tower and yeah this goes down I think in history (laughs) as like the most transparent and honest piece of work in the history of openings and art for openings so it was just a pyramid of beer cases and the opening at the opening people were invited to have a beer were you there at that opening no no i wasn't okay so but basically people took bottles out of the cases drank and then the piece was left as this like shambles pyramid with broken Mm. glass everywhere um, but really, like, I mean, it, it's a very cynical piece, to be honest with you. But very uh, broy, yeah, broy. But also, I think, like, because I know he does some political work that he was, I think, trying to reflect. Well, his whole stuff is about the decline of uh, an empire. Yeah, exactly. Because he does yeah. stuff with the like Cleveland Indi- Indians logo and some other stuff. But uh, I think th- he was trying to be critical, but it also comes off as a bro joke for sure. Um, and yeah, I think there were Reddit threads where people were calculating how many beer bottles there were. <laughs> it, it's it's just, it, for outsiders, the idea that you can go somewhere and drink for free and you can walk around the city and everywhere there's free drinks. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a French movie called La Haine. Did you mm-hmm. see it? No. From the 90s, it's a black and white movie about the troubles in the banlieue, in the, the outer rings of Paris. Mm-hmm. And... It's a lot about class. There were riots there, and people feel trapped. There's a subculture. There's graffiti, and there's hip hop, and there's drugs, and problems. And then they 
for some reason they go into Paris and they go to an art opening and they're all looking around kind of <laughs> nervously and they decide, oh, we can have drinks for free here. Oh, that's amazing. And they start talking, but then they're just these troubled adolescents so their energy is a bit, people are already a bit yeah suspicious of them and then they say they're trying to hit on a girl and it's just very uncomfortable and then they have to leave there's just this class barrier that's what the movie but the, is about. yeah but that's a, an interesting aesthetic tension at every opening between those who belong and those who don't and like you know this if you've been in the opening because it's like the room sort of divides itself you know, and you can spot the outsiders that are like. Well, there's also alcohol, so there's always a few alcoholics who yeah, so just are like semi semi homeless yeah. and who show up, and it's fine, but they start saying the wrong thing, or maybe they start undressing, or mm-hmm. like weird stuff happens when you give people booze for free. Mm-hmm. I think that's a big part of it. It's. But what I find interesting is it's like this one site where all the politics of the art world play out in real time as sociology. <laughs> yeah, it's like, no, we're all woke and we're all for good things. And then, but no, we don't want those smelly people here. Yeah, you can see like the gallerinas or the gallerists in the background kind of like, oh dear, what are we going to do about this situation? <laughs> yeah. Those teenagers are getting awfully rowdy. And what if they touch the work? And da 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 da. And, you know, and then there's the insiders and the press. And there's just like everyone, the whole sociology is right there. In, in the moment yeah it, it, that was one of the interesting things for me so I started this project BYOB bring your own beamer and the idea was a lot of artists w- work with moving images and it's really hard to make an exhibition with moving images because all the equipment is expensive mm. um, so I thought if it's a one night event and people bring their own projectors uh, the cost is zero if it's a one month event then you would have to borrow things you would have to insure them you need guards yeah. etc so I thought if it's a one night event it's a lot easier um, and the interesting thing was there was all this energy from people knowing each other from online and knowing each other's work and then meeting in real space and I think that's what openings are about you kind of know each other and then you see each other in real space I, I remember starting as an artist in Amsterdam and just looking around and then you go to one opening, it's kind of awkward, but you meet one person, and the yeah. next time you meet a few people, and... Um, yeah, and it's very yeah, lovely, I, like, once you start to recognize, because the way it works, and maybe this is the field guide for those that want to go to openings, but feel like they're not welcome. So here, it's very simple. If you want to start to go to, if you want to get included in the community, you go every, you go on a regular basis. And before long, you could, like, go to the first one. On the first week, just go in. Walk in, walk around, and walk out, and go to as many of those as you like until you find a gallery that you want to come back to the next time. Then the next I opening don't know that if they it's have, that simple. I no, still like, feel a lot of anxiety. Start going on a regular basis to choose one, one that you really like, right, and follow what's going on, right, and then come back to their next one. Maybe have a conversation the second time with one person. Don't push it, it, it <laughs> right? Like, this is a funny point because, it, like those teenagers in in Laen and mm-hmm. all that stuff, it's really. Uh, everything is a club and then you want to be admitted to that club and uh, no matter what club you're in then there's the next club so it's uh, well the problem is like that first conversation that I just mentioned that you're going to have on your second or third visit you know that's the, where you get outed <laughs> so it's like <laughs> if you manage to stay quiet and is noticeable and then you have your first conversation and that conversation you know it, you'll probably talk about oh and are you an artist or how are you involved in the arts or whatever and yeah, if you what are you bringing to the table yeah so you have to Exactly, you have to bring something to the table, which I think makes it very difficult for people. I don't to get past that. But I, that, I, I that, honestly, that line. I think if you, 
if you're going to openings uh, for some reason to meet people and all this stuff, you probably have a goal. Because otherwise, why would you go to an opening? If you, you might just like if, art. I know, but if, if you like art, if I want to see an exhibition and really see the works, it's better to go on Thursday morning mm. uh, or Tuesday morning and really look at the works by myself. So it's like if you showed up, so imagine it's like Thursday night in a college You're selling town. something. If you're going yeah. to an opening, you're selling something. Because <clears throat> otherwise it's the equivalent of like just walking into someone's random house party because you hear, oh, there's like a party going on. You well, not only, not only that, it's like uh, if you would want to try neckties mm-hmm. and you want to try a few in a store, uh, would you go on the night that they have an opening? No, because you would be too busy. You couldn't try the neckties. You'd go on a Tuesday morning, and I then see. you'd get all the service. Right. Plus, you're yeah, you're not in the necktie business, and the conversation would be dry. And I'm just, just <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, I basically I don't know if you if you're not if you're not making art or you're not curating, and it's much more enjoyable to go on a quiet day. Well, let's look outside of art for a second, because in fashion they have the equivalent of an opening as a runway show, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. And those, it seems, seem like are open to, but they're invite only usually, right? Well, th- this whole, it, 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 everything seems to be around a social structure of, of circles of saying, I drew a line here and mm-hmm. these people are in and these people are out. Yes, that's how it is. <laughs> is that like <laughs> and if I don't you can know. just if if you just enjoy yeah if you just want to enjoy the fashion just. Uh, well, I think it's just because like there's a myth, there's like a myth con- misconception and a myth potentially around the concept of an opening in the art world where it's like, oh yeah, this is when we're open to the public, and you'll hear people say that. Um, but just in my experience, it's not open to the public. It's not at all. In fact, it's like it, the illusion is it's open to the public, but it's not at all a public event, whether it's good for the public or not. But I've just never yeah. seen mm-hmm. the public at an opening. I've never seen them there. You know, it's like after 15 years of going to openings, I've, you know, like I said, it's usually one or two people that stand out like sore thumbs. Would you want more people to participate in art? I kind of think, think I would, I personally, you know, early in my career, I was making video art and video art was always placed in the back room in a dark you know, room with velvet curtains that, and there was like no one in there. And if you had an opening, there's no one in there and everyone's out in the, the bright lights drinking and having a great time. I always wanted to get out of the dark room and into the main gallery, right? Yeah, no, so. no but do you, do you think the art world, museums and galleries need more audience? Well, the, yeah, they do. They need the support. Yeah, they need support. Why would they need more audience? Because they're fight like in a way they're fighting for relevance. At least, so it depends on what metric you use. Like if you were to use government money as a metric, the government's tracking audience numbers, and they're make using yeah, that, that to determine how much art gets funded. That's a, it's a funny contradiction. So there's two two different arguments for the commercial galleries or for government-run museums. But in both cases, the no, art because the artists might have applied the, for a grant for their open. You know, and then yeah, they have an open. but the argument that you need lots of viewers for subsidized culture is contradictory because you're subsidizing things that <laughs> are very niche that couldn't survive in the market. So why but, would you expect them to yeah. respond to market d- demands? Well, that's a very good point. Um, but and it is like an inherent contradiction if you look at the way funding is structured, such that you have to yeah. always tell people and how many people did you reach and what press did you get and da 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 da. That's your grant yeah. report, right? But the, the point is, this is too too much of fundamental research that it doesn't appeal to a lot of people. That's why these grants exist, not because they're successful. You, if it was successful, why would I apply for a grant? Well, because the idea is supposed to be that you're making art not just for your friends, 
right? And not just for yourself, yeah. that you're making it for, you know, humanity or for society. Um, and that, you know, so you're yeah, making but a then, cultural so contribution. So then, then you're like, okay, well, why don't we subsidize the Rolling Stones then? Because they appeal to a lot of people. Mm-hmm. Well, or, like, why even have a gallery? Like, <laughs> which is the point I was <laughs> no, trying to no, make no, at the but, beginning. But my point is that um, at an opening, you can't really see art. So it, it, in, in museums, the, the MoMA is extremely successful. Everyone who visits New York is like, oh, we got to go to the MoMA and mm-hmm. see the, the Picassos and the Warhols. But it's impossible <coughs> to view the work. Mm-hmm. And no one gets, and, and you, get an, you need an invite to go to an opening at the MoMA, don't you? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But regardless of the opening, I just think that the uh, art world success should not be measured in numbers. Mm-hmm. So an opening might be really great, but only five people came. The thing, yeah, I mean, that's a fundamental value uh, proposition that you're making, that like art should, you know, it can be for very few people and be very successful. And I think that that's a great, a great yeah, point. Yeah, maybe the idea of success should not even be uh, applied to art because... You lose some sense of autonomy or, or a genuine interest when you start evaluating it. The only problem is if that art is made for a very narrow niche of people that happen to already be in a position of power, right? And then it's like, I would I would make the argument that, okay, that's great, and you're being publicly subsidized. That just doesn't seem fair, right? Like, mm-hmm. um, and there have been artistic movements that have. You know, I often mention yeah. Fluxus on, on the podcast. Yeah, yeah, that have, yeah. We should uh, do an, an episode about public funding because there's the, the model of the BBC and something like Monty Python came mm-hmm. out of that and that would be really hard to come out of a commercial context. And then there's HBO, which generates a certain type of content, which is interesting too. Yeah. It's, it's a, a I was market funding. You know, I've been thinking about it a lot recently because like, as I saw this guy talk about marijuana as something that was not approachable and that there were certain codes that made it not approachable, including the tacky, like rainbow, hippie, green, screaming leaf kind of culture of, you know, like it like essentially sex shop aesthetic that most marijuana stores have. And he was like, hey, if we just made it like more like... Penis-shaped bongs. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> we just made it more approachable and like didn't tell people to fuck off, you know, then, uh, then it would be... Then we might be able to make something um, popular out of this. And that we wouldn't have... It's not an aesthetic compromise to do so. Um, and I, I guess my question is it's, like... It's funny that whenever people want to make things approachable, it's either... Brooklyn coffee shop or Apple store <laughs> aesthetic. Those are the two goals. Like those are the two platonic ideals. Yeah, no, you're right. I mean, the uh, one thing that's interesting is there was at this conference there was another guy from uh, I spoke with at length from Nike, and Nike has this problem that's like really interesting because they sell so they sell oh, limited Nike. They got problems. I know, I know. <laughs> Everything, every stat I heard from them was like Jesus. Like they just have a license to print so much money, it's mm-hmm. absurd. But so one of the things they do is they release like limited edition sneakers, right? Yeah, I and see the lines all the time. Yeah, yeah, exactly. You see those lines. The problem they have is when when they're selling when they were selling those online, people were writing like bots that would like just buy them all online, and then people would resell them in their own stores, like scalpers at twice the price. And so there was a real problem of like bot buying bots buying all the Nike limited edition sneakers. And there's like this villain on the internet. That like, <laughs> who's like notorious for buying, having like warehouses full of these limited edition things and reselling them. So Nike stopped like 
uh, stopped selling those limited editions online, actually, which is really interesting. And they started only selling them in an iPhone and Android apps. But then what happened was, because the bots can't scrape those, um, what happened was, though, the fans, the people that used to line up to get these like limited edition sneakers, got really mad because everyone had access to these sneakers, right? Now anyone can have them just because they have the app and just, you know, and it's not who's there first because it, it would do a random selection. So you would open the app and it would do a random draw. So no matter who you were, whether you like love Nike for life or had just like downloaded the app, you're treated <laughs> equally, you're treated equally, right? Yeah. And people were, the loyal fans were really mad about that. And that's where I think it's interesting in relationship to the art There's world. This, because, yeah. Well, it reminds me of a story. And, oh, sorry, I'm interrupting. No, no, it's fine. It's fine to interrupt. But the solution they came up with is is going to fascinate. Is fascinating. Maybe we take a commercial break and then I come back. This is okay. a cliffhanger. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. I just wanted to intersect. There's a similar problem with they tried to introduce a, a flight that was all business class. Mm. This usually twenty percent or thirty percent of the chairs is business class. Yeah. And it didn't work. People want to feel special. They want to be like, I'm in the front, you're in the back. <laughs> that's awesome. Okay, so that's a good uh, that's a good segue into this week's ad. Um, I think you're leading it off. I'm leading it off. Yeah, here we go. Not to interrupt, Jeremy, <laughs> but you know, I've been thinking a lot lately about the extent to which technology and, a- and aesthetic implicate contemporary art in global neoliberalism. Whoa. Hey, 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 Raphael. I thought we didn't like to discuss politics on this podcast. Yes, but sometimes you can't help getting political where art is concerned. You know, Raphael, there is a podcast made right here in Toronto. That's where I am. That does do politics, art, art and politics. Right. I can see how that might appeal to our <laughs> listeners. Well, it's called Precariat Content. Precariat Content? It looks at art making as cultural production existing in a labor ecology that unequally privileges and obstructs careers in art. You know, it reminds me of post-con... Yeah, but this is another Skype interview-based podcast on topical America-centric politics. <laughs> Snore. <laughs> I Low, oh, I, the lull is perfectly placed. I actually laugh naturally. Classic Raphael. Precariat Content is an experimental podcast. It's super plus sophisticated TBVH. Hmm. The interviews are used as source material for process-based compositions and low-key expressionist sound design. Who writes this stuff? Probably another marginal artist toiling assiduously away within the narrow constraints of her or his ability. Uh-huh. Classic Jeremy. Sounds pretty high concept, but I'll give it a try. <laughs> it's a podcast that documents through sound portraiture artists uh, sound portraiture artists in a range of career stages. It asks questions that contextualize the social conditions the artists work in, but it also zooms in on the people and relationships behind the artwork and practices. I was interviewed by them. All right. I'm going to check it out. I assume you can find Precariat content on iTunes and SoundCloud? Yeah. And don't forget to subscribe and favorably rate and review if you're into it. Oof, that's a big ask. Okay, thank you for sending that in. Um, it's a great podcast. I was interviewed by them, so uh, that's full disclosure. Yeah, Thanks for sending it'll in your be in the show notes. Yeah, yeah, I'll put uh, I'll put a link to it in the show notes. Yeah, it's missing that CTA. Um, so and now we have the compelling <coughs> conclusion to the yeah. Nike saga. Compelling conclusion with a hacking cop. <clears throat> so, what did Nike come up with? to solve this problem of everyone feeling like they were being treated us, the Jeremy, same. Us, what did us. they come up with? They came up with this app called the Sneakers app. And 
when it basically the sneakers out, it's like you get to read about what upcoming sneakers they have and they have like editorial content, but there are little Easter eggs in that content sometimes. Like there's this one exam that unlock like uh, a, like a secret location. And then you go to that secret location and then when you get there, you can unlock the shoe and you can buy it there. But you basically have to r- jump through oh, hoops. Okay. So, they so it's a GPS. Yeah. yeah. But are there, are there GPS fooling softwares where you just download an app and it fools the phone? Well, like I'll give you the one one example that he shared in his presentation uh, of this like Penny Hardaway shoe and like Penny Hardaway's basketball player and he had this like hide- one of those hideous Nike alien shoes. It was like blue tentacles like mm-hmm. strewn around one's foot. And he was like fined by the NBA for wearing this shoe in a, in a, in a playoff game. It was his for, you know premiere of the shoe, his shoe for Nike limited edition. And so the next time he came back, he was fine. Why was he fined for wearing? He was fined because it was too much blue in the shoe. And you you have to have a certain (laughs) percentage of black has to be like 75% black or something. Okay. Too flashy. So he like by hand, he colored in all the negative space on the shoe with a Sharpie marker. So when you're on this app and you're reading about this story, there's the shoe at one point, and if you like touch on the shoe, you can start to color it in. And if you color the whole shoe in, it unlocks like a special video, and Penny Hardaway's like, hey, you found my secret content. And he's like, now, like, if you'll just go to this location in New York, you know, you'll be able to unlock this shoe and buy it, you know, buy it yourself. Anyway, there's like lots of these little Easter eggs It'd where be, they send people around. It would be cool if they give a really difficult location, like at the top of a, a mountain that's covered in ice. <laughs> yeah, that's what <laughs> I said. Like, Who really cares? I was like, no, you could like change uh, like democracy because you could be like, go vote for your Democrat candidate <laughs> and unlock at the voting booth the new Democrat shoe or something oh, like that. How do we get here? <laughs> <laughs> but uh, anyway, um, I just thought it was interesting in relation to our conversation because they di- you do need these like people need to feel special. Right, they need to have that. There needs it can't be for everyone. People need to chill. Well, the gallery context thrives on this idea of making people feel special. The opening is one place where that happens. Yeah. Um, If if you're of the opinion that everything follows economic interests, then what's important at the opening is to have lots of cool people. So then collectors are rich people who are not that cool. And then they're like, oh, I saw so many cool people at this opening. So if I buy that work, then maybe my friends will think I'm right, one of those. Right. And there's always been like... Um, Even though I'm a boring financial analyst. I kind of hesitate to say this, but there are, like, um, there are certain galleries that have built reputations around like creating like a party culture, like the after hours or after opening, after party kind of scene. Yeah. Um, and... You know, well, basically, you get into the cynical mode when the marketing is very removed from the product. Because it, if the art is about something, but the party scene around it is mm-hmm. just hired people to make it look cool, it's not genuine. But if it was a genuine place where the, uh, the work and the artist and the gallery and everything is one thought, yeah, yeah, then it's fine. Yeah, if the work is very playful and it's about being young and partying and then the opening is that way, then it makes sense. But they're famously like, uh, I was just trying to remember, it's Perez Projects, I think, that like I think is most famous for having created this like pretty hardcore gay party scene around the gallery um, of luxur- luxury and like you were buying into the gallery. And Terrence yeah. Coe is a Canadian And it all art. made sense because the artists and the gallerists and yeah. the work and everything was one thing. It was one, yeah, it was one social scene, basically. And maybe every gallery is actually that way. 
Well, it's about energy, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but it's different from a, I guess it's a, like a brand exploration, but on like this very local community level. Uh, yeah, and it's funny when you apply marketing in, in, to to their art world. because the economics are so small. It just doesn't make any sense, yeah. Yeah, because <laughs> the scale, even when people calculate, oh, the art world's pretty big, it's so small compared to crude oil or... Uh, but the money could be very big. Like Perez was already wealthy and then got into galleries. Yeah, yeah. But if you if you if you think if you say big money, if you think of art as a category and like mm-hmm. Gagosian as a company is is the leading is the biggest financial success mm-hmm. or whatever. But if you compare that to sneakers and you compare Adidas to Nike, it's just such a different scale. So mm. yeah, yeah. But I think it doesn't have to be. Yeah, it doesn't have to be negative. It can be positive, too. Like, I recently, um, I don't know, this this trend towards galleries shutting, I think, is transitioning. Maybe there's time for us to discuss, like, other alternative models. So it's not just openings that are maybe... maybe um, yeah, the funniest thing to me is, is I'm, I think openings uh, are problematic because you can't see the work, and you have to be at a certain place at a certain time. So uh, I think in the greater scheme of things, they're unimportant. Well, I understand things, but what I'm trying to get at is then when you have an opening, it sort of makes things, oh, it's art because there's an opening. So mm-hmm. then they applied this sometimes to NetArt where they send out an email. That's what I was like, trying to get to, yeah. Oh, yeah. This website is only viewable. There's a private view before. And it's like all the downsides of the physical <laughs> art world apply to the web. <laughs> well, this is what I've seen. Like- and then by, by rule, whenever I see an email of a temporary online exhibition, I will not view it. And, like, yeah. <laughs> But it has become a thing where there's like the, you know... It's like making everything you know and love about sandwiches. You can hold it in your hand, (laughs) you can travel it. We got rid of that. Yeah. Yeah. Actually, this is something that you have to uh, use a fork and knife, and it has to be in a specific place. Well, because it boils the opening down to a press release, basically, right? Like, it's like, okay, it's available now. Um, And I think what we've been talking about is like, for even on in the digital world, for there to be a successful launch of something, you have to include a community in it, right? There has to be some, there has to be some, it, either if it's physical engagement, it has to be like some physical engagement with people for it to actually take off because you yeah. can't do it alone. Well, the, there are artists like Solowit who were, they wanted to remove their personality and their physical person as much as possible from the work. They mm-hmm. just want the people to be confronted with the work, not knowing the persona of the artist. Right. So there are artists who will, by rule, not attend their own openings. They're like, I need my focus. I need to focus on the work. I want people to be there with the work. So I don't want all this circus around it. Hmm. Uh, yeah. I mean, I don't. Do you know any artists living today that haven't that would not go to their own opening? Yeah, I think like ten percent of artists or something be like, no, that's not for me. It's not for me. <laughs> and uh, I mean, ideally, you just want the work to speak for itself. Uh, and who cares that there's like some person who made it who's wearing a nice outfit? Right. Right. Yeah. I mean, I always feel quite uncomfortable at openings, but uh, of my own. But uh, not well, what as I like about it is that I get to travel. Because otherwise, it, I mean, you do performance, but mm-hmm. if you, it, it's also nice to see people viewing the work because yeah. even if you make net art, you have no idea what the what the response is like. Well, there it's is interesting to see. It does remind me of one of the most the famous openings in New York, um, which I think I've mentioned on the podcast before, was when Vito Conchi, um had this opening and he didn't attend his opening. 
and the floor of the gallery was at like a 30 degree angle and during the whole opening people were like where's Vito where's Vito Conti Vito by the way famous video artist uh, and during the opening it was revealed later that he was masturbating under the floor <laughs> it's like such a ter- is there documentation of that the, of him masturbating yeah uh, you can say anything like, right oh, like that could just be rabbits mythology. Under the floor. If there's <laughs> right. no evidence yeah well there's also like um, there are other examples of like um, of, of crazy kind of st- well if you, you start to get into performance and perf- when performers do openings they would typically do things a little bit differently and it, it actually reminds me that I should probably be I used to perform at my openings and I, ha- I didn't perform at the last one that was a mistake I think um, yeah, yeah but um, but like you know there's there's you know from putting like a, a wolf in the gallery to masturbating on the floor like famous kind of situations that have occurred in the art world I don't know uh, anything goes anything, anything goes there's no rules whatsoever. <laughs> yeah that's right it's all good it's all good yeah, I don't know Where do we, it, what's our good it, point today um uh, do we? I think there was a bunch. There's, there's been a few good ones. <laughs> yeah. It's up to other people to decide. You wanted me to talk about performance today, but I didn't want to talk about well, it. Well, this I think that's for our next episode. But it, it's funny that this this idea of talking about performance it gets a little cringy because you're like it, it gets manipulative. Mm-hmm. Like I want people to value the work by the people that attend the opening, or I want them to appreciate more. Or you can look at it in a positive way. It's like, oh, I can... I mean, I met a few good good point podcast listeners. So that's... But then it's so busy that you only get to talk mm. for a few minutes. Did you... Did you? That's good. Like, while I was at the... Well, the conference I was at, I should say, I forgot to mention. Uh, I was performing at... Um, the people that invited me, they invited me because they heard the podcast. So... Uh, oh, there you go. There's yeah, a that was a first. Yeah, yeah that's a conversion. Yeah. <laughs> it, it, it's funny that... We used to meet in New York quite often and in other places. And ever since we started the podcast, we haven't met physically. <laughs> and I'm going to be in New York soon, and you're not going to be there. So Yeah, yeah. So there it goes. There you yeah. go. Uh, what else? Is that it for today? What do we think? Well, it was funny. I remember there was an opening in Amsterdam. Because you... It, it, let me put it this way. If you are inclined, you're like, I want to do something with art, but I just don't know where to start and who to talk to. And so mm-hmm. I, I was in that position where you're like, who, who, how do I meet people? So you start going to openings and there's these weird rules like, oh, there's drinks for free. Oh, that's strange. Mm-hmm. I don't know any other social event where you can just walk in and get free drinks. And then there was a big opening in Amsterdam of an institution and it was open to the public and I went with a bunch of friends and they had the biggest table of tapas and really nice quality and we were there and all my friends were not used to going to openings like wait I'm not going to get fined I can just grab something like oh this is crazy and we just (laughs) (laughs) so there's a they don't serve food so much anymore at openings, but well, I've always, nice. I've always, I, maybe we could do, just end on some like pet peeves at openings. So, <laughs> my pet peeves <laughs> for openings are, uh, I don't, I if I have an opening, what I restrict, I will not allow there to be cheese at the opening, because I find that the cheese like gets all sweaty and dewy, and it's like it's disgusting and it smells mm-hmm. and it, I, it, well there's another thing that's disgusting is that the, the light for artwork is not the most flattering light for people <laughs> especially if it's a cold day and people come in they in, in a northern country and they have a red nose and then 
they haven't eaten anything, so they start drinking red wine and their teeth kind of stain <laughs> and their breath is weird because they haven't had food since lunch and the wine comes out. It's it's not the most flattering. Mm, you should ban red wine at Europe. Well, I, imagine if an opening was at a beach around uh, sunset mm-hmm. and that kind of lighting. Yeah. It's very different than a, a, a concrete room with fluorescent lighting. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Well, that's just because the aesthetic trends have led us to this like fluorescent white cube. Yeah, that's not, it's meant to exile humanity from its <laughs> breaches. But uh, yeah, yeah, cheese. Don't want- is, I, I want a lot of cheese. I don't usually have music at an opening. I think that that is an aesthetic uh, contradiction, like unless the music is in the work. Um, actually, I don't think I've ever heard, like, usually if it's an institution, it would be in a separate room. There's rarely any. Yeah, music. I, there's a famous exhibition. Uh, Marcel Duchamp designed the exhibition. It was an exhibition of modernist paintings and pretty standard with, uh, uh, you know, those sort of booth walls from art fairs with a lot of paintings. And he he just suggested, let's have a kilometer of string hanging around, like a, about a mile of, of just twine mm-hmm. hanging around the space. So it felt like a giant spider web, but... What you don't see in the photos, there was also the smell of coffee. He wanted a smell. So they, oh. had, they had coffee roasting, coffee beans roasting, so you would smell that. Yeah. Oh, that's really cool. You just reminded yeah. me as well, of well, as well of an opening a long, long time ago when I was in undergrad at this gallery here in Toronto called Art System, which was like a student-run gallery. And they were going to shut down forever because the student council had found out that the founders were using all the money to buy cocaine and just get, like, getting high, like, the directors of the gallery. So they like they they invited anyone that had they ever found sh- the cocaine receipts. Yeah, yeah. They invited anyone that ever shown in the gallery to make like a piece that fit in a four by six area, and then they had an exhibition that had everyone who had ever shown in the gallery, and then so that was the outer all the walls of the gallery filled that way. But then they they constructed a smaller space at the center of the gallery. And they put bouncers outside of it, and they played music in that center. And they said it was like the VIP area, and only you could only be in there if you had ever exhibited at the gallery, and the general public wasn't allowed in. <laughs> <laughs> and what happened was really exciting, um, which is at some point someone. I don't know, handed someone a hammer or something like that. But like from inside, the the party got really wild. And then people broke down the walls and for people from the outside, like fought their way in and it ended mm. up in this big, like kind of moshed, mosh yeah, pit yeah, kind yeah, of thing. Yeah, yeah. But it really... It's a nice visual. Yeah, it brought up sort of, it just came to mind because that's kind of been the good point uh, of the episode, which is like, got to fight your way in, but you also have to fight your way out. <laughs> um, <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> of the the social constraints of the art world anyway yeah yeah the only the only good point i want to make is that uh art viewing is such a solitary quiet uh, in, uh movies you watch with a, lot, a bunch of people and uh concerts you're used to being with a lot of people but just art seems like this more long-term quiet viewing thing mm-hmm. uh, there, there, there are artists who approach it differently but you, you think of art of like a landscape painter being there alone and viewing something for a long time and this intensification of perception. And that's maybe why I cringe a bit with openings because it's just so far from what art making is. What art making is isolation and concentration and openings are the complete opposite. Mm-hmm. So that's a bit where it gets tricky. They're laughter, champagne clinks and yeah, yeah, gossip yeah. or something like yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, 
Well, okay, let's, uh, I think that kind of sums it up in a nice way. What's our field recording this week? It is Union Station, is that the one? Oh yes, Union Station. So just, just I want to clarify to people, uh, we get sent in quite a few field recordings. Thank you very much. Thank you. And so we ha- we we have to choose. And then Jeremy is of course very nice, so he th- thinks we should choose in in how people send it in, in which sequence. But we get sent in so many that that would mean some great ones would never be heard. So me being the asshole of the show, <laughs> that's not true. I just. I just think we should choose the best one. So at this moment, the one that, I was yeah, the going one that through you a bunch, feel. and I thought this one appealed to me. Yeah, uh, Adam Harms, did, uh, he recorded sounds at Union Station in Los Angeles. It's a beautiful train station. If you've ever been there, it's um, a really classic feeling. It, it really feels like a, a golden era of the U.S. And uh, he recorded. <laughs> it's so sounds funny there. that that. that train that's the golden era in a place where the train was killed by the car or whatever yeah yeah but it just the, the architecture the feeling and the light like when you think of the, the, yeah it's beautiful all right well thank you um adam for sending that in and adam says he's been recording a lot more often since he uh, started listening to the show i hope you are yeah, too, we're creating listening. a we're creating a, an army of listeners yeah yeah people just listening to the planet so thank you so much again adam thank you for listening today continue to send in your field recordings and advertisements we love to read them and listen to them thank you and uh hear you see you next week i hope i'm better by then (laughs) yeah (laughs) feel better thanks everyone bye bye